0: Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 244. For this episode, I drove out to Long Island, New York, and I met up with Nick Christophers. Nick is a writer, and he primarily writes about the mob. While not a mobster himself, he grew up around that life as a young person, and he has a firsthand knowledge of what goes on, and he knows a lot, a lot of the players in the game. And I think what makes Nick really interesting is that he's written heavily about the Greek mafia, which is something that I hadn't known a lot about. So, hey, I'd love to learn. Drove out, met up with Nick. He has a book called Mafia Ties the Greek Syndicates that talks about, obviously, the Greek mob, but he has a number of other books. He wrote a book called Destinies that is being turned into a movie right now, and that's really exciting. He has a book Called prison rules that he co-authored with the ex-mobster john alight and we'll talk about that in this conversation so he's got a catalog of fiction and non-fiction that is super interesting and he also writes about mob movies and writes uh reviews like in the entertainment sphere so thanks nick for having me out there i drove out to to his office in great neck new york And we had this conversation. Towards the end of our talk, there was something going on in the building and it sounds like a chainsaw is going off or like a power drill or something. So I'll do my best to bounce that sound down, but I just want to apologize in advance for like the last 10 minutes for the noise in the background. If you go to the show notes for this episode, you will find a link to all of Nick's stuff. And there will also be a link to my Patreon account. And that's a service where you can give monthly And get some cool kickbacks like shirts and stickers, postcards from the places that I travel to, all that kind of stuff. If you're interested in this topic, go back and listen to my Tampa Mafia episode. Go back and listen to my conversation with Frank uh, DiMatteo, who actually knows Nick. They both worked together on the Mob Candy magazine where Nick was the editor. So yeah not from this world, but I do have a couple of episodes that touch on the topic. So if you like this one, go check those out. But for now, I'll stop rambling and enjoy this conversation with Nick Christophers. All right, sweet. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me. Thanks for hosting me and thank you for your time. This is, again, not a world I come from, but something that I'm interested in kind of interested in everything, but you seem like a really knowledgeable authority on the topic. So it's uh, an honor and a pleasure to get to sit down with you. Oh, same here. Awesome. Uh, So where in New York did you grow up, Nick?
1: Rockaway Park, which is near Howard Beach.
0: Okay. A place that I know well, and we can talk a little bit uh, (laughs) off recording about that. But I guess for people to understand, like South... Queens close to like the Nassau, Queens border-ish mm-hmm. area.
1: Exactly, right. yes.
0: A place with uh, an interesting history itself. So like what, when you were growing up, not even related necessarily to the topic of the mafia, but just how was it growing up there? What was it like?
1: Um, well, I, I grew up, I'm, I'm not Italian, I'm Greek. So I was raised in a very strict Greek family. Um, the mob thing didn't come up to a little bit later in my life. I was about 13, 14 years old.
0: Because
1: mm. um, when I went to elementary school, I was bullied every day and beat up every single day. Oh, they jumped me every day. Um, elementary school? I'm sorry? In elementary school. Elementary oh, school. That's brutal. Yeah. Um, I wasn't a tough kid growing young. My parents were always working. My, back in those days, the old guard, back in those days, uh, parents didn't have time to sit there and... Okay, son, this, you do this and you do that to pick up a girl. You do this to get into a fight. They don't have time for any of that bullshit. Yeah. They're busy working. So I never got the proper schooling, so to speak, street schooling. I didn't get any of that. I had to learn the hard way. Um, just like all my brothers and my cousins, we all did learn the hard way, which I think is the best way, in my opinion. Um, so after getting bullied for so long, when I got into elementary, um, when I graduated elementary school, went to junior high school. Um, we had a um, a class, an English class, and the teacher had us read a book, which was um, a requirement. Mm-hmm. And the book was called *The Outsiders* by S.C. Hinton. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Oh yeah, great book. And after reading that book, I felt very connected to the character, you know, Ponyboy and Johnny. Uh, I felt like like it was me, almost. And I connected so much to it that when I got into the junior high school, there's a kid I met, his name was John, and he was a leader of the gang in the school. Johnny Pissaris was his name. And he was the leader of a gang called the Bay Rats, or the Bay Boys, whichever one they went under. And uh, they were from... um, they're, they were from an area right near JFK Airport, okay. which is all water. Yeah. Okay, it's, near, it's not too far from South Ozone Park. So I hung out with them. And I got so friendly with these guys. I joined the gang eventually. You know, I had to do something to join the gang, so I shoplifted. I got caught. Um, so that was my initiation. And anybody who started a fight with me in elementary school, I started a fight with them in junior high. Mm. Everybody, every single person that bothered me, I picked on them. The reason why I picked on them, not because I was any bigger, um, because I had the gang behind me. I had protection. So I knew I had, you know, I wasn't bullied no more. So at that point, at that same time, um, my dad had a cafe in Long Island in the Five Towns area, which is not far from Rockaway Park. Uh, At this point, we moved to Long Island at this point. And my dad at Cafe and a lot of guys that came in there were wise guys.
0: Mm.
1: Not necessarily from the neighborhood, but they used to come from different areas. And we had a Gambino guy come in there, a Bonanno guy, a Colombo guy. Uh, the Colombo guys, first of all, the uh their, was a family was the Arena family. Vic Arena was the boss. Was the boss at the time actually, I think. And I grew up with the whole family. I knew them all, I knew them well. I used to play with his sons. Um and they used to come in there all the time. And, you know, at 12, 13 years old, you're like, it, it you know, it creates sparks of interest, right? Guys with nice cars, they come in there, they do whatever the they want, they sit at any table they feel like, you know. And there was one guy, I told the story many times, and I think it's pretty funny actually. Um, there was a guy that used to come in in my dad's cafe, his name was Sally, and he used to walk behind the counter walk all the way in the back of the cafe in the back room and close the door. I was like, what the hell is he doing? (laughs) And I'm looking at my dad. I said, Dad, what's he doing? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Okay. So I got curious, wondering who this guy is. What's he doing back there? Eventually I found out he was taking bets. Taking horse bets, football tickets, and he used to have a football, he used to have an envelope on top of the cashier in the shop and I I took a look one day, Stacks of cash and these football tickets. So I took one of them and I made copies of it at the local library. And I went to school and I started giving them out to to all the kids in school and they were betting with me. So I was like my own bookie. But eventually my dad found out and I had to stop doing it. I said, damn, I was making some good money too. Because the problem was me doing that, if the wise guys or Sally ever found out, I'd be in trouble.
0: Oh, yeah. Because
1: I'm using their tickets, making money, they're not getting anything back. Not a good thing to do. So I didn't get caught, obviously, because I just stopped doing it. Um, so that's my first, I guess that was my f- first step into that world. Mm-hmm. See, I'm a different kind of a writer. I'm not just a, I don't just, I don't write about it. How would I, express, how would I put this the best way? I'm not a reporter. Mm-hmm. I'm, I am, but I'm not a reporter like other reporters. I'm a different kind because I lived, un, lived somewhat of that world. Right. I lived around these guys. I hung out with them. I went to clubs with them. I almost got involved in it in that world. Um, regular reporters, are just reporters. They should report it because it's interesting news. Me and Frank, the one Frank I was talking about before, we lived around these guys. So it's a little different, you know, than other reporters that didn't live around that world. Um, so that's kind of how that kind of happened. Mm. To answer your question, you know, sorry if I went too far. No, no, that's great.
0: I mean, did your parents ever find out about your involvement with the
1: the Bay Boys, the the local? No, no, really? never had any idea. I had anything? No way. I mean, I was. We had rumbles every week, with the against the blacks or against the football players. I mean, things like this happen all the time. Um, I used to carry a little switchblade in my pocket. Uh, we didn't really fight back then. It wasn't like they didn't use guns or anything. It just wasn't like that. You use your fists. That's basically what it was. Once in a balloon, somebody pulled out a knife. But it was extremely rare. Um, only one time I saw a gun. I mean, them using it. And it wasn't us using it, you know. Uh, we, had a, we were supposed to have a fight against the blacks. No, like, sorry, against the jocks. Because I'll never forget this. There were three fights in the whole day. From the morning, m- the morning bell in junior high school. The first bell, there was a fight with Louis, my friend, I remember the guy, Louis Muscovis, who was like the second in command of the Bay Boys, so to speak. He had a fight with some black kid. That's in the beginning of the day. In the middle of the day, there was another one with this other kid, Carl, who had a fight with another black kid. At the end of the, at the, end of the day, the school day, Johnny had a fight with one of the other guys. And it was one of, one of the jocks. So we were supposed to have a fight with the jocks, the football players. We were supposed to meet outside of the school. So we met outside of the school. We had about 30 guys with us. Oh, my God. Us, because we had guys come down from Brooklyn. So we had about 30 guys with us. The football players never showed up. The black kids showed up instead. So, okay. So we went to a park to have the rumble. You know, like, it's almost out of the movies, you know? Yeah. And... We didn't all fight with each other. The leaders fought the leaders. Like, it was John, my John, their John, John Kinder. I still remember the kid's name, the black kid. He was the leader of the blacks. It was him against John, Louis against some other guy. And, and yeah, it was Louis and John. That's it. And they fought. They were fighting. You know, we were just all, each group was just watching. And they were losing. The <laughs> yeah. they were losing. And all of a sudden, this kid, I still remember his name, too, Eddie DeCree, he all of a sudden pulls a gun out. Everybody sees the gun. So we get, we don't know what the freak to do. Everybody's like, what the fuck? You know, what's going on here? So at that point when he pulled the gun out, everybody started, we didn't know what to do. Then we hear sirens. Somebody must have dropped a dime on us and the cops are coming. Everybody's scattered. Everybody's running all over the freaking place. And if anybody gets a chance to get a good kick in somebody, they did it. Um, I got cut with, a, I got I got slashed with a knife up here. Whoa. Uh, so we're all running all over the freaking place, and then I find out this was a Friday. We always had the fumble. Fr- we always had the fights on a Friday, for some freaking reason, because this way we can rest over the weekend. Right, right. It's So <laughs> stupid. That's what we always did. And, uh, and then on Monday, when we got back on Monday, uh, when I went to school on Monday, I found out that the gun was never loaded. It was only a ploy, Whoa. just so because they were losing. They were losing the fight, and it was his way of getting out of it and it worked it worked (laughs) but but nobody knows nobody won it wasn't like who won right you know so that's the only time i I ever had that kind of scenario happen where i saw a gun but normally you never really did like i said everybody fought with their fists or maybe a maybe a uh, switchblade maybe a bat Uh, most of the time that's all it really was
0: the movie The Warriors is obviously like a caricature of real life, but it almost makes me think of that, that like everyone was kind of grouped up with someone and maybe you had to be. Like how how realistic was it that there were just like so many different groups and gangs? Well, I,
1: I, I can rip every mob movie you can mention. Uh-huh. Of how accurate it is this? forget about it. I can The Warriors, I love that movie. Um, the Warriors came out when I was in junior high school, actually. I oh, think it wow. was, what, had to be in the 70s? Something like that, late 70s? um which was a weird time for it to come out because that's when tensions were were between the blacks and the whites and fighting each other and blah 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 uh the Warriors was a great movie uh how accurate it is it's pretty accurate mm. in my opinion i think so um were there that were there that many gangs in new york at that time i don't think so i think that was a bit exaggerated to some degree i think so uh but accurate, yeah. I think it was pretty much on point.
0: Actually, I'm gonna break my own timeline that I had in my head here, but on the topic of movies, in the so it's a show, but in the first season of The Sopranos, <laughs> they're they're referencing and sort of like watching mob movies and The Godfather, I believe. And it almost feels like a little bit like satire, almost like there's a little bit of comedy worked in there. I've always been curious, and you've been around this world a lot. Like how much do actual wise guys and guys in, in the mob and in gangs like how much do they actually like the movies or do they think that like this is uh, such like a, an inaccurate representation of what's actually going on?
1: Well, the funny thing is the the Godfather, I'll forget about the Sopranos. Sopranos actually is a Sopranos is a depiction of the New Jersey mob family. That's where they got the idea from. The, the, the Cavalcanti family in New Jersey hmm. is the Sopranos. That's what they did. They took the New Jersey family, what they've been experiencing, what they're doing, and they made the Sopranos. That's pretty much what they did. A lot of events that were in the Sopranos um, script actually really happened. into the New Jersey mob. Um, when you're saying, to answer your question, yeah, a lot of these wise guys watch these movies. Some of them, sometimes they laugh at them. They think it's funny. But the funny part is a lot of things that were in The Godfather, the wise guys used in their, re- in their real life. You know, the thing about, uh, we're going to the mattresses. They, used, they started using the same term. Uh. Um, things like, there was other things in there that they used. Uh, I'll give you an offer, uh, an offer you can't refuse. They started, the real mob guys started using the same term. So they do rip off stuff from TV. Thinking, oh wow, that's a pretty cool thing to do. Let's do this, you know. And so, where art imitates reality, yeah, it's 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 really weird, you know. It's true; it does happen.
0: You see that happening with like a lot of modern stuff with um with like Tony Montana, right? Like, there's a lot of people that are trying to like emulate that in music and stuff like that now,
1: like the rap world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Scarface was very. I think Scarface was pretty damn accurate. Mm. I know those Cubans were psychopaths. <laughs> the, I mean, Latin gangs in general are just insane. They just have they have no they, they, life means nothing to them. They, they kill your whole damn family. They don't care. The mob guys have a little more. I, it's funny it me it, but they have a little more morals. They have some kind of a moral line they don't cross. Yeah. When it comes to that, um, Latin, Latins, Russians, Albanians, they don't give a damn. They'll blow your whole freaking house. They don't care. Colombians. It's, they don't give a damn, that's why they don't last as long as the mob does. On that's the, the why,
0: on the movie topic, I think I had read or listened to you say that at your dad's cafe, Sonny Black, who was uh Michael Madsen played him right in mm-hmm. um Donny Brasco, used hmm. to real life guy who used to come by the cafe.
1: No, it wasn't Sonny Black, oh, okay, it was John Boobie Sorsani, who in the movie. Donnie Brasco, which is very inaccurate, by the way. I can rip it up, I can rip it to shreds. I can put it through a shredder. Uh, everything is so inaccurate there. But nonetheless, it's very, it was a great movie. I loved it. Entertaining-wise, yes. Uh-huh. Accurate? Hell no. Um, the guy that was in the, the... When they go to kill those three captains in the house... Yeah. Johnny Depp is waiting in the car for them, who's supposed to be Donnie Brasco. There's a guy that comes into the car... After they killed those guys, which that never ha- first of all it never happened in the house, and no, and those three guys weren't even involved in it. When he comes to the ca- car and he gets in, and the guy is like breathing hard in the back seat, and Johnny Depp, go- Johnny Depp goes, Johnny is everything okay? The guy that's the actor is James Russo. The guy who gets into the car who starts breathing hard, that's my friend. That he's playing my friend John. What did
0: he think of that? It's like seeing he, that portrayal of himself. Well, I'll in tell you
1: what happened. John Booby used to come to my cafe all the time. We used to hang out, bullshit. He used to drive a white Lexus, and we one time we went to I went to AC with him, and we dropped like five grand that one day. I never forget it. Um, John actually sued the the company that the the distribution company or the company that put that movie out. He sued them for defamation of character, because Booby was still alive. And he was still running around and he, his, he was depicted in the film. So he sued him and he won. Whoa. <laughs>
0: That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned, well, I was going to ask you this. So you mentioned The Outsiders. Have you ever read or seen Rumblefish by the
1: same yeah, author? Yes. Yeah. Great movie. Great movie, too. Great book.
0: Uh, but so that sort of like maybe sets you down the path. When did you start? Writing or thinking like, okay, I could start writing about this lifestyle?
1: Um, Well, I started writing in junior high school. I I, I was writing books similar to, I was writing stuff similar to like The Outsiders kind of a storyline, and it was kind of almost about me, really, because I was around it. I was in a gang at the time. Um, But when I really started writing about mob stuff, per se, uh, I've always was, I, I became fascinated with it after meeting a lot of these guys, seeing them, whatever, reading, I've read every book that's ever been written about them, pretty much. My library is ex- utterly extensive. Um, but when I started writing about mob stuff, let me think, 2021, right? Let me go back to, that 2018. Go back 11 years, 12 years. I don't even know what the hell that is. 1990, I don't know, ninety-eight, something like that. Is when I really started writing. I wrote my first book, the one that I'm making into a movie now, uh, Destinies. Uh, I wrote that, that that I wrote that around that time. Wow! But I rewrote it in 2018, redid it, obviously because now I know a lot more, or whatever. I know how to put it together, and as I redid it in 2018, and I got it published in the same in 2019. Um, which is my first book, uh, Destinies. But that's when I kind of started, it. around 98, when I started writing about this kind of world and really getting to know it a little bit better. Um, and even Destinies has a little bit of my own experiences with these kind of guys. I put it in it a little bit mm-hmm. to make it a little more realistic. Um, but since then, I wrote, since 2018, I wrote four books already. Yeah. I wrote four books out, you know to fiction, to nonfiction.
0: I'm going to get into a couple of those in a minute, but I've seen people ask you this question and ask other people this question. I think thinking that there's some sort of like, well, the question is like, well, what interested you in that world? Why would you want to be around mobsters? Why would you want to cover this topic? Or for some people, like, why would you want to be a wise guy? And I think they're sort of like looking for this like, Deep philosophical response to like something that's innate within us, right? That like, but to me, it seems very simple, maybe. And you let me know if I'm wrong, but like, especially at the time, we're talking about like a lot of working class communities. And for a lot of working class people, you will work your whole life really hard and you'll get by. But I think what the the lifestyle sort of offered or showed people was like, you could really get by and have, like, a life where you're, like, um, important and sexy and wealthy and exciting. And that sort of offers an escape from maybe, like, the nine-to-five type of lifestyle.
1: Right. Yeah, pretty simple um, then. <laughs> all right. I mean, so your question is why would anybody want to be in well, that world?
0: Well, I guess, like, is that is that the answer? It's sort of like an escape from maybe just, like, a more typical lifestyle.
1: Well, I mean, back see, with the birth of the mob, it was a whole different ballgame. The days of Lucky Luciano, Frank Costello and all them, those guys had no choice. Those mm-hmm. guys were born in poverty. So they had, it wasn't that simple to go get a job and, and you make enough money to take care of, it wasn't that easy back then. So those guys, I kind of don't blame them to do what they need. They just do, The saying goes, you do what you got to do to make a buck. Um, but that has changed dramatically over time. You know, um, the need, the desire to be a wise guy, let's say in the, I would say in the 60s, 70s, 80s, what you just mentioned, the flash, pizzazz, the women, the cars. The ba- yeah, it's very, I mean, I was attracted to it, mm. you know, because I saw that, you know, the money they made and this. Why should I bust my ass in my dad's cafe when I could freaking, you know, I can. Do football bets and freaking make $500 a month doing ungats. You know, why wouldn't I do it? Yeah. You know, so that is the attraction. But then the reality sinks in, where you can get whacked. You can go to prison. So back in those days, 60s, 70s, mostly 50s, 60s, 70s, people didn't, guys who got involved in it didn't even think about the prison, didn't think about that. Just wasn't beyond that. They didn't think of it. They didn't look at it that way. They looked at it as, well, life is too short. Let me enjoy it. I can do this. I can do that. I can do whatever the frick I want. I can go wherever I feel like it. Nobody can bother me. Uh, I have immense power. Whatever. I mean, that was the attraction, you know. Um, But that has changed, obviously, over time. Around the 90s, a lot of Italians, not just Italians. We're not just talking about Italians here because it's an Italian mob. I'm Greek. There's a Greek mob. There is. There was. Uh, Albanians, Russian, Chinese, even the Jews. Everybody had it. So everybody had that opportunity to get involved in their own ethnic mob, so to speak. But I think during the the end of the 80s into the 90s, you know, a lot of kids were able to go to college, get an education. You know, they started realizing I can make money Hmm. the legit way. There's no reason for me to go on the street no more. The, 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 it, that's why the, the mob has diminished a lot lately. It's very it's like a, a shell of itself mm-hmm. than what it used to be. In America. In Sicily, no. Different ballgame. It's still very powerful. Um, and Canada. Those are the only two areas that I, I could definitely say they're still freaking whacking people in Canada. We're not doing it here because we don't it's, it's a law. Nobody gets whacked anymore. It just not how it doesn't happen in New York.
0: Before I started researching for this conversation with you. I never in a million years would have thought that there was a mob presence in Canada until I started reading it because of your work and your research. Um, Which is going to actually take me to the Greeks, because I think also, like, my knowledge of a Greek mob, and I think maybe, like, collectively, uh, the country's understanding of it isn't so great. There aren't as many stories, there isn't as much information. And that's where you come in, and I think that's really fascinating. Uh, Of what I'm understanding, like, if I'm talking about the Greek mob here, it's like a Greek-American mob because there was a presence in Greece already. Can you Mm -hmm. talk about, like, how that got started in the States and who the major players were?
1: Yeah, well, that that, kind of got – well, the Greek mobsters were around since, let's say, the 30s, 30s, 40s, around Mm -hmm. that time. Uh, They were always involved in gambling. And yes, they came from overseas, uh, mostly from the parts of Greece, which is Mani, Athens, Crete, uh, uh, Batmos, in those areas, are kind of where they had a power base. Um, and they some of them brought it over here, just like the Sicilians brought it over here. Um, and they were always involved in gambling. But they were always under the Italian flag, always, under the Italians. They were never really separate from them because they, they weren't as big. They weren't, they just, it was a very small cruise like they had in New York. In New York, the first real player was Peter Kodakos, and he was under the Lucchese flag. After he passed away, Spiro Verlanzas, he took over. And he was still under the Lucchese flag. It's in New York. Um, actually, Valentas, I know him well. I know the whole family. I've been to him, saw him, visited him in prison twice already. He's doing a light bit, actually. Um, in Philadelphia, um, same thing. The guy who developed the Philadelphia crew came from Greece. Came over here, whoops, came over here and developed it here. And that, that was two guys that ran it was Steve Budas and Harry Petros. Both got whacked by Nicky Scarfo, but they ran the, all the PCP trade, the drug trade. in South Philly was all run by the Greeks. Uh, here, spirits ran all the gambling, gambling, bookmaking, um, loan shocking, all in the, in the New York Astoria and Bay Ridge area. That was his territory. Um, there were other parts of the country that they were in, somewhat, in somewhat relevant. In Chicago, most likely. Uh, Not most likely, mostly in Chicago, sorry. Uh, uh, But those were American-born Greek Americans. Uh, Gussie Alex was the pretty much highest-ranked Greek mobster in Chicago, who was number three in the Italian mob. He was considered number three, Um, next to Joe Weepa and Tony Accardo. He ran all the politics in Chicago. Nothing moved without him in Chicago. It was impossible. He paid off the judges, the prosecutors, everywhere. He had the, he he was a political fixer, big time. And he had a crew of about forty forty Greek guys under him that ran gambling dens, you know, loan sharking, all this kind of stuff. Uh, George Giacominis, uh, there was um, um, Nick uh, Buda Harris, all these different guys ran different. There was a Greek town in Chicago, like like we have here in New York. Well. It's kind of smaller now in New York, but um, there was a small little Greek town in Chicago, and in the restaurants there was gambling then going down in the back in the basement or in the back of the restaurant um, I can't exclude out also with Detroit Detroit had a little, little Greek crew under the under under the Italian mob, um which was Katranis and his brother P. Katranis. They ran the Greek mob in that area, but they paid up to the italians that's just. It's always been like that. Hmm.
0: Didn't Spiro have a, like a clash with the Gotti
1: family? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, Spiro um, opened up a gambling den not too far from a Gotti den. And John Gotti asked uh, Sammy one time, this is actually on, on tape. Um, I have the tape at home. But they put it on TV many times, this one line. But they never say who he's talking about. Why, I never know. But um. Yes, uh, John Gotti approaches Sammy He says, Sammy, do you know anything about this gambling den That's right by our place? Who the, who, who the fuck runs it? And he goes, oh, uh, the boss of the Greeks And he goes, really? And he says, yeah He said, well, tell that motherfucker No, he says, he says, tell Sammy I, me, John Gotti, will sever his motherfucking head off If he doesn't move the den And Sammy had to go back and tell him but prior to that happening, Dominic LaFaro, who was under the Gambinos, tried to sh- try to kill Spiro. They sh- they they ambushed him somewhere and he started shooting. They didn't kill him, obviously. They wounded him and two of his guard, two of his bodyguards. Um, but that was the obviously he moved it after that. And obviously he moved it. Um, but yeah, he had a, the funny part is John Gotti and Spiro you used to see them at the racetrack together all the time betting. Really. Yeah, they knew each other. It wasn't like they didn't know each other. They knew each other well. Um, but yeah, that's what happened between him and the Gambinos.
0: When you're researching all of this, like, how are you extracting this information? Like, Particularly about the Greeks where maybe there's less information. How are you gathering all this?
1: Well, like I said, I'm friends with Spiro. I'm friends with his family. So I visited him in prison twice. And the funny part is, um, my second book... No, sorry, my third book, which is called Mafia Ties, the Greek Syndicates, which is about the Greek mob globally. Uh, Originally, that book was supposed to be about Spiro only. It was supposed Uh to be a biography about his life. So when I mailed Spiro, out of respect to him, I mailed him the first chapter. Not about Mafia Ties, but what I was writing originally about his life. I sent him the, the chapter, and then he calls me from prison. He goes, hey, Nick, how you doing? I say, Spiro, how you doing? I got the thing you sent me. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> what about it? He says, I don't like it. I said, what's wrong? You make me sound like an Al Capone. <laughs> I'm like, Spiro, you weren't a choir boy. What do you want me to say? His pet peeve was for me to write about how the government screwed him, which they did. They railroaded him. But I, I kept, I kept trying to explain to him and his daughter Vicky I can't write about just the court, about the court case. Who's going to read it? we got to write about how you got from point A to point Z and everything in between. No, no, no. I just want to write about how the government screwed me. I'm like, Spiro, I can't do that. That's going to be boring as hell. Who the hell yeah. going to want to read it? You know, it's not like you're a John Gotti. you have your celebrity name where people are going to want to read it in a curiosity. But they don't know who you are. Nobody knows who you are, really. So... That's why, how that happened, you know. And I get a lot of my information from people I talk to, Greeks in the neighborhood that I go and speak with. I grew up around those guys. I used to go to Spiro's den. I used to go to nightclubs that he owned. So I, I know a lot of the players already just growing up, you know. And did research, of course. I did my research. But um, I also have FBI tapes of Spiro. He's talking. Oh. So I have all the information I need. Him talking about John Gotti, him talking about the the, the Lucchese's gas pipe, uh, Vicar Musso, everything's in there. So I just listen to the tapes. So I'm getting... and Plus I had the transcripts from the court. So I got everything I can need, imagine that I need about these guys. So that's how I get it.
0: Either writing or as like the editor of Mob Candy, are you ever nervous, or is it ever dangerous to be writing about some of these topics? Like, uh, I'm not sure if anyone would ever get mad at you. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah, it happened. It has happened more than once. Um, When I mean, um, when I was writing for a Greek paper, Greek magazine here in Astoria, I did a story about Spiro. This is before I really got to know, when I really was able to get close to him. Um, And the editor of the magazine, Athena, she calls me up one time. She goes, Nick, I gotta talk to you. I go, what's wrong? He says, Some guys some guys came here looking for you. I said, What do you mean? Looking for me, but why? He says, about the article you we did what we put out about Spiro. I said, and? He says, they were looking for you. It's not good. I said, ah, that's nice. I don't care. <laughs> she was like, what? I'm not scared of nobody, because I have no fear. Uh, nothing happened. They just came by. I guess there were pissed off that I wrote about it. Um, Another time um, with Mob Candy Magazine, me and Frank put out a story about John Gotti. And it was about... We had a picture of him in the magazine from prison when he had throat cancer, and his face looked really bad. And we caught hell from Vicky. Victoria, his his wife. Oh my God, why did you put that picture there? She was she was burning me and frank about it why we did that and frank was telling them telling her what other people put it out there why are we different and i go back to what you what i was telling you earlier the reason why what's the difference is because me and frank are too close to that we were too close to that world i see we're not like regular reporters right you know we're not a jerry Capici that he wasn't part of that world he's a lawyer he was a, a he was a, a reporter and he's Teaches criminal law, or whatever. He's a good guy. He's not a street guy. Me and Frank were street guys at one time, so that's where the difference is. I see. Yeah. You know. And another time, recently, actually, a couple of years ago, um, my second book, which is called Prison Rules, which I did with John, John A Light. John A Light is John was ex, the ex bodyguard of John Gotti Jr. And when I put that, when I was writing, when I was in writing the book, didn't put it on you, when I was in the process of working on it, I got hounded by Angela Gotti, this other guy, Chris Casparosa, which was one of John King Jr.'s little puppy dogs. They were emailing me, hitting me up on Twitter, Facebook, why are you writing about this guy? He's a liar. He's a pathological liar, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it, it was, they got annoying. You know, it was bothering me all the time. I didn't care. Then listen, fuck yourselves. I'm going to do whatever I want. I love John. John is one of the most, I think, genuine guys, wise guys I've ever met, outside of Larry Mazur, who's another friend of mine who was with the Columbos who lives in Florida. Um, very genuine guy. I loved and I, worked, I did the book regardless. I don't care what they said. Because the book is not about John Gotti, first of all. They just didn't like, the thing with them, all the respect to them, the Gottis, if you, they don't like when you earn off their name in some capacity, even in the smallest way. They don't like that. They only want to earn. They don't want anybody else to earn. Excuse me. You know. So those are the times that I got some slack. But not, I'm not afraid, and I don't care.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask you about that book. That that was basically like John's almost like survival guide about his experiences in prison.
1: Exactly. It's it's a how to survive in prison, exactly. From the time that you get arrested to the time that you hopefully get out. So that's what it's all about.
0: I pulled this. (laughs) There's a wild quote about John. I pulled this from his wiki. Um, I think this is also like from your book, but it says that he's estimated he shot between 30 and 40 people beat about 100 people with a baseball bat and killed six people. It's like, holy crap. And this is like right under this in my notes. I'm like, (laughs) did Nick ever feel like he was in danger? (laughs) Because that is wild.
1: Actually, when I met John, me and John, me and John had a lot of familiar. Me and John really linked up, hooked up really well because um, a lot of guys I knew that he knew growing up. So we really were able to connect Uh. that way. 'Cause we had we knew some similar people growing up. And uh when I met him the first time, I met him in Jamaica Avenue, his old his old stopping grounds. And this is very this is a couple of years ago. Um so you would think this guy's gotta be out of his freaking mind. He's walking around the old neighborhood of Jamaica Avenue, where anybody could just pull over and shoot him, you know. And I'm sitting in a restaurant with him. Then we go out and meet him and just walking down the street like it's nothing, you know. Um, I told some of my friends I was with John like what are you insane you're walking around Jamaica Avenue with John A. Light I mean he's, he's like a, there's a target on his head oh, yeah. you know I'm like I'm not worried about it you know and he's not worried about it he's not scared of nobody whether those numbers are ac- extremely totally accurate yeah. are up for some debate but regardless was he a tough guy yes did he do some tough bad things yes Uh, I can't dispute that one. That's a fact. I know that for sure. Um, He was a bruiser. He was a tough guy. That's what he was. He was a bodyguard for John Jr. I mean, that's what he does. You know, Um, I admire him. I like him a lot. I think he's a great guy. Uh, I believe what he says. But like we said earlier, everybody bullshits a little bit. Mm. So he might have twisted things here and there. Who the hell doesn't? You know, we all do. You know, but... What eats me more than anything is when people call these guys, like Johnny A. Light, Larry Mazza, my other friend, Andrew DiDonato. uh, Andrew was with the Gambinos. You know, Johnny A. Light was with the Gambinos. Larry was with the Columbos. um, Billy Cotolo, another good friend of mine, whose father was Wild Bill. He was with the Columbos. Um, When people call these guys rats, they're no good, they're that, they're... If anybody does any research... Do you do diligence find out why? Or Sammy, Grana for another case. Why did these guys do what they did? They did it for, there had to be a reason to do it. Yes, you're a mob guy, you take an oath, you don't rat. You do what you got to do. You take the the time, you do the time, whatever it is. Granted, I agree with that to a certain degree. But at the same token, there's got to be a reason why these guys do this. Sammy, I don't blame him. John was, throwing, John was going to whack him. John was, throwing, was going to throw him under the bus. I don't blame him. Why should I? Why should I do time for this guy that I did whatever he wanted me to do? Now he wants to screw me. Where's the loyalty? John A. Light, perfect example. Johnny A. Light, uh, new indictments were coming down. He fled to Europe. He went on the lamb. He didn't rat. He didn't say anything. He went on the lamb.
0: They got him in Brazil, right? Eventually. He,
1: entered, he was all over Europe. Then he ended up in Brazil. And he was doing some shady stuff in Brazil because that's all he knows how to do. He's a gangster. That's all you know. So he got pinched in Brazil and ended up in one of the worst prisons in the world. Ayo Franco. It's the worst. And when I tell you the worst, the worst. Really, really, really bad. Uh, it's, like, it's, like, it's like a shithole. It was terrible. It's like you moving into a sewer and staying there. That's how bad it is. Um, so here's a guy sitting in a, one of the worst prisons of the world, still doesn't open his mouth. Meantime, back at the ranch over here in Florida, in New York, John Jr., with his lawyer, Charles Charles Canassi sit down with the the government. So wait a minute. Who sat down with the government first? John Jr. did. Not John. He didn't find that out until he was sent to Florida when he got extradited. So who flipped first? Not that John Jr. really flipped, flipped but he did sit with the government. In the mob world, if you sit with a cop, you're a rat. Even if you don't say nothing, you're considered a rat. You're not supposed to serve with the government. You're not supposed to sit down with the authorities. You're not supposed to do that at all. That means you, what he did, what John Jr. did, is what they call he proffered. That's what it's called. So he sat down with him. That's it. You're done. You're a rat. There's no way to cut it. So you shouldn't be calling these other people that when you're one of them yourself. What's even funnier is that John Jr. is in the process of doing this program or show, whatever it's called, WITSEC, what Wittech means is guys who were in the mob who became witnesses. So wait a minute. You're screaming at John A. Light for being a rat, but now you're going to do a program about guys who are ratted? How does that make any sense? <laughs> That's like an oxymoron. It makes no sense. So uh, just to, I just wanted to throw that out there because I hate when people call these guys rats when they do have a purpose or a reason to do it. Mm. You know, like John A. Light, when he got extradited, the FBI told him, you got two choices, man. With all the, guy, all the information we got, you could do life. Because 30 guys ratted on him while he's sitting in Brazil. 30. 30. They they, called his, they used his name and testified against him. Yeah, he did this. Yeah, he did that. John did this. John did that. While he's in, in Brazilian prison. Then he gets extradited and he's being told, okay, bro, you got two choices. We can arrest you right now. You can do life. For all the shit we got on you, forget about it. You can do life. Or you can you can help us out. You can join, uh, you know, Team America. What do you want to do? Yeah. Oh, let me think. What's to think about? It? You got guys that were with you, close to you, your own cousin, ratted on you. So what would you do? I mean, shit. I would do. I would definitely say, hey, where do I sign? I mean, you gotta be more on not to. Why should I do life for these guys?
0: Yeah, obviously. Again, I don't. I'm not from this world, and a lot of what I've seen is not through movies, and that's like, you know, a dramatization. But through researching for you, um, reading Frank's book, it, it often seems like the lifestyle doesn't end well. Like for the vast majority of people yeah, that are, it in
1: doesn't. It. Yes, very few guys. We're not talking about guys who flip now. Very few guys that were in the life that stayed in the life. That really that were a success, like you just you know said, Mylanzky, is a perfect example. Mylanzky died of natural causes. The guy lived his whole life, never was shot at, never had any kind of. Uh, he lived his life. He exited the life in a way that most people would never imagine him. He hardly did any time in prison. Uh, so, so there's other guys, I'm sure. I just can't think of the names, top of my head right now. Um, Frank Costello who was just told, retire, and he retired. Joe Bonanno, same thing, retired. These guys lived a life and were able to talk about it. They didn't get, you know, they didn't work, get, work and weren't killed, they didn't do life in prison. So very few, of those, but you're talking about the old school guard, big difference. Yeah. They, they, they have a whole, they were shrewd, different mentality. They knew what they were doing, Like in Luciano. Same thing. So he got extradited to Sicily. Big freaking deal. But he died in the heart attack in the airport. But he died, again, natural causes. Didn't die in prison. Wasn't killed. You know, it's very few of them are able to exit this life in a, in, a, in a so-called honorable way, I guess you could say. You know, but most of them don't. They end up in prison or dead.
0: Okay, well, it seems now to me that maybe there's not, at least from what I've heard, there's still, like, mob presence in New York City, but there's, like, the Jamaican mob, and there's, like, remnants of, like, a Russian mob in South Brooklyn. Every couple of years something will happen where, like, like a family or a home in South Brooklyn gets shot, or in Jersey. Uh, how much of a current, like, contemporary mob presence is there still in New York?
1: Ah, oh, so you're talking about the traditional mob.
0: Um, I guess both, the traditional mob and then, like, what is around now? Like, what's happening?
1: Um, I mean, what's around now? I mean, the, the Russian, the Italian mob is still there. There's still five families are still around. They're just not as powerful, not as big as it used to be. Um, because John Gotti kind of messed that up. He kind of destroyed the mob single-handedly. Uh, even though I respected John Sr., um, he... Doing what he did it brought them underground. Because after what he did, you know, the too, vi- too much of a visibility, guys walking up and down, Burger Hunt and Fish Club at the Ravenite, uh, that had to stop. So the older guard of the mob said, no more. There's no social clubs left in New York. There's maybe three in Brooklyn. That's about it. Uh, right by President Street in that area, in the, the Carragones area. There's like three left uh, that I know of um, So, it is still there. Again, just not as big as it used to be. Membership is really low. Um, Where, let's, for example, like the Columbo's, it was like uh, they had 200 members, maybe more, Now it's like down to 90. It's like really nowhere near what it used to be. Uh, The Russian mob is still around. There always will be. They're in South Brooklyn. I mean, um, Brighton Beach, sorry. Um, But they don't really... They're effective in their own environment. You wouldn't realize, you you know, you're on Long Island or some other area. You don't even know if they're even around. You don't know if they even exist, you know. Um, It's not so much because they're low-key. It's because they keep within their own group, their own community, you know. The Sheepshed Bay area, Emmons Avenue around there, or the Bryant Beach area, very much so. Um, Jamaican mob, again, they, there's no, there really is no Jamaican mob. It's Jamaican crews, drug dealers, Rastafarians that are, I think, more, again, in their own community, you know. Not like the Italian mob, which they were every, freaking everywhere, you know. Uh, it's a big difference. Like I said, the there's never going to be anything like the traditional Italian mob. Nobody can ever come close to it. The only ones I can think of that come close to it is maybe the Yakuza from the Japanese mob, or the triads, the Chinese triads. But even them, they stick to their own area. They don't really go out to the Jewish neighborhoods. Or the, but they don't really do that. Um, so is it as powerful as it was used to be? No. Is it, on, is it moving? Is it going? Uh, is it sliding down? Yeah, pretty much. It's almost on its last leg, pretty much. But like I said earlier, in Sicily, you have the Ingrata, you have the Camorra. They're still, uh, they're still around, you know. They're still very powerful. Uh, the Ingrata, forget about it. They're very, very strong. Um, which is not the Cosa Nostra. Cosa Nostra is a mob. is a traditional mob in Sicily. The Engrata is uh, from uh, an, from Napoli, and then you got the Camorra, which is in the same round, similar similar area. Um, they're very. They're still movers and shakers all over Europe with the drug trade and this and that. They work with the Albanian mob. They're still very powerful. Um, but in there again, in Europe, somewhat here, but not really. More so in Canada, which is used to be Rosudo, Vito Rosudo territory, and uh, and uh, and Katroni. But what part of Canada? Montreal, oh. Montreal, and Toronto, uh, very big uh, mob presence. Still, that's that's, the, that's actually the Bonanno faction. It's a split Bonanno faction, because when the Donnie Brasco movie we were talking about before, the guys who killed the four cap three captains, were two guys uh, two guys from Canada, Vito Russo and Georgie Ciaccia, which is Georgie Canada. Oh wow! Had nothing to do with Sonny Black or Nicky Santora or Lefty Ruggiero or Donnie Brasco. None of them were there. That never happened. Outside of not getting killed in a house, either, they got killed in Sammy Gravano's restaurant in the basement, and they were taken out and cut up by John, by John Gotti Jr.'s crew. Not the way you saw it on TV, the movie, completely wrong. Um, so that's so the only elements that are really prevalent are the guys in Canada and the guys in Sicily.
0: You I'll start winding this down. It sounds like there's a chainsaw going off downstairs. <laughs> but you have a story that's being developed into a film, and I was wondering right. if you could tell me about that.
1: Yeah, my first book Destinies, which was published in 2018-19. Um, it's we're in the process of a pre-production right now. We got a couple of actors already involved in it, uh, which can always change because that happens. Uh, we got you know, the Al Sapienza. He was in House of Cards, Sopranos, Law and Order, uh, Lou Martini Jr., who was in Sopranos, Manifest, um, Lou Venaria from Bronx Tale, Al Linnea from Boardwalk Empire. All those guys are involved in the project. Um, there's a good possibility, if everything works out, Aman Asante is going to come involved too, and maybe even William Forsythe. We're going to approach him. Um, so yeah, we're in pre-production now. Uh, we're on IMDb. You can find it. Destiny's the movie. Uh, we, we just we just uh, we just locked in distribution with a company a very good company in California that has that distributed Triple um, X which is the Vin Diesel movie mm-hmm. and uh, the Punisher they worked on those projects to give you an idea so they're pretty good they're pretty uh, pretty legit uh, so right now i'm just we're in the process of um solidifying investors which is some guys i'm going to be talking to in Florida very soon I'm going to go visit them that are going to be pretty much interested in putting money into the project to get it done. So uh, we're getting close. Oh. It's getting there.
0: <laughs> is, is that story a female
1: lead? Yes, yes. And Nina, Nina is the main character in the film. Also, we're, we're almost done with the teaser. That should be out in about a couple of weeks. Oh, sure. you know, we'll be, we'll be filming again in about two weeks, finishing up the last bits of the, of the teaser. So that'll be out soon. Um, yeah, the main character is a woman. And it, it's a fiction story, but it's somewhat based some little elements of what I grew up on seeing, and whatever uh, characters I put in there, or some guys I actually knew, whatever. i mean changed the names, of course. Uh, so yeah, it's about a woman that gets mixed up, not mixed up, but she gets caught in the web of the mob um, unknowingly, and. She falls for the main, the guy that she gets gets her involved in it by accident. She falls for him, and um, you know there's a mob war going on. There's the FBI cracking down. All this stuff is happening in the background, um, and they have the the main character Nina and Santo. They have a kid, Tommy, the son, and without giving too much away, uh, she unfortunately dies in a car wreck, during the storyline. And Santo decides to live up to a promise that he told Nina. He promised Nina he would never get his son involved in the mob world. And he promised her he wouldn't let let, let that happen. So the way he did, to to avoid that, he had Tommy be adopted by a well-to-do little waspy family. Anglo-Saxon, nice, good family. So Tommy gets raised by this family, but never know, doesn't know who his father is, his biological father, because he's only two years old when he gets adopted. So he has no no recollection of his mother or his father. He thinks his new adopted family is his real father and mother. So eventually he grows up, long story short, he becomes a prosecutor, he becomes a uh, assistant DA to the District Attorney's Office, because he always wanted to be a lawyer, and he, gets, he ends up prosecuting his father. He finds out right before the trial that the guy he's prosecuting is really his biological father. But he has no choice but to go through with the case. Because if he says anything, it would prejudice the case. So he says nothing. So him and his him and the DA win the case. His father gets sent to prison. And this is like towards the end of the story. Then he gets an anonymous fax at his office that if he doesn't find a loophole to remove, to free Santo from prison, that... They will expose that he's related to Santo, which would, not only, which would, of course, prejudice the case. Santo would be released from prison anyway, but it would put a major blemish on the DA's office. That's where it kind of ends. All right.
0: Very cool. <laughs> um, how can people follow that, follow your future work and any other books that are going to come out in the future? How can they find you?
1: Well, you know, they're going to go to my website, you know, nickchristophers.org. You know, www.nickchristophers.org. They can find me on Facebook. Nick Christopher is very easy. I'm not, I'm not hard to find. Uh, you just punch my name on. I'm on like eight different pages on Google, I think. So I'm very easy to find. Um, Amazon, same thing. Just punching in the titles of the books. You know, Destinies, Destinies Volume 2. No Honor Among Thieves, that's what it's called. Um, Mafia Ties, the Greek Syndicates, and Prison Rules. You'll be able to find anything you want.
0: Awesome. And in whatever player you're listening to this in, you already know I'll have links to that stuff, like just a hyperlink so people could find it. Uh, easy access. Thank you, Nick. This is fascinating. No um, you Maybe one day, once the film is out, we can do uh, a part two. So I appreciate this.
1: That'd be awesome. Thank you. Right, cheers.
0: Hey, Voyagers. That is a wrap on episode number 244 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thanks so much for coming on, Nick. I learned a lot today. I think there's a lot more to learn. So maybe after the film, we can do a part two. I think that would be pretty cool. Thank you to all of you, Voyagers, you know, as always, for tuning in, for spreading the word, for sending me messages. I appreciate all of it. I think the best way to get the podcast um, in more homes and in more ears is to talk about it and to leave a rating review on iTunes and all those places where you can listen to this. Okay, signing off for now, Voyagers. As always, please take care of each other. I will catch you very, very soon.